Welcome, everyone. I'm Aaron Jacoby with Errant Fox Schiff, and today's podcast will cover preventing and detecting fraud at your dealership. We'll be speaking with Lewis Fisher, who is a partner with Moss Adams. And Mr. Fisher has been with Moss Adams for 15 years, joining the firm after beginning his career in the retail automotive industry in the year 2000. Prior to joining the firm, he worked as a finance manager in a retail dealership, so he knows a lot about what goes on internally at dealerships. He functioned as a corporate auditor for the largest privately held automotive group and served as a controller for two automotive dealerships. Importantly, Lewis recently co-authored the latest addition to NADA's dealer guide with a chapter on preventing and detecting fraud. Lewis will be focusing his comments on detecting and at the very end of our program, give us tips on preventing fraud at your dealership. We also have Kim Leinberger as our guest. Kim is a director with Moss Adams and has over 15 years of experience in the auto industry. Kim's work involves valuations for various purposes, including mergers and acquisitions, estate and gift planning, litigation, shareholder disputes, marital dissolutions, and measuring economic damages. And Kim will be focusing us on the impact, the economic impact to your dealership's value and some some of the other economic challenges created by theft, essentially fraud. Welcome, Lewis and Kim. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So, Lewis, let's start with you and let's dive right in. Fraud is certainly a big topic for dealerships, and we know that there's everything from falsifying records, bald theft, misuse of resources, selling off equipment, money, theft stealing supplies, et cetera, kickbacks. That's another big thing. And we also know that dealerships are prime targets for fraud. But why don't we get right into some examples that are specific to dealerships and tell us what you find and how you find it and where you find it? I know that's a broad way to start, but let's start that way and we'll dive in as we go along. I like how you noted that they are a big target for fraud. I sometimes wonder if in the fraud guide manual for those who want to do bad things, it puts dealerships right at the top of the list because dealerships always have a way of attracting people that want to commit acts that would take assets away from the dealers. And part of that is because the dealership is really, as we know, multiple businesses within one business. So you don't just have a monolithic operation. You have a parts and service department and you sell vehicles, you service vehicles. You may have a body shop and you may have a leasing company. And so you have these various departments that allow for fraud to occur. And so when we're thinking about this, we have to think big picture, but we also have to be able to drill down into each one of these departments because the fraud that occurs is unique for each of those departments. And that is before we even get to the accounting office, which is another place that fraud can occur, which is the more traditional location of fraud when we look at businesses that are not in the retail automotive industry. That's a very good point. And I think most of us think of the accounting office as a place where maybe there's embezzlement and other sorts of major fraud going on. But let's dig into some of the different business departments that you mentioned and perhaps start with new and used vehicle sales. What do we see going on there? So new and used vehicle sales, there's a variety of different things that can occur. And some of those things are basic items that dealers are familiar with. Maybe a straw purchase where a buyer is coming in to purchase a car and they're not the end user. Potentially trading of vehicles where there's undisclosed damage or defects. But we can also see things that are a little bit more nefarious where potentially the wholesaling 
process within the dealership is not clearly defined. And so you could have a used vehicle manager who's buying vehicles, but also then reselling those vehicles to the same wholesaler, maybe at a loss to the dealer. Well, let's define some of these terms. Straw purchases, can you tell us what that is for our listeners? So a straw purchase is where a buyer comes in and presents themselves as the end user of the vehicle, but the vehicle is going to go to somebody else. And that could be a family member, that could go to a friend or an associate who likely doesn't have the credit that would allow them to buy that vehicle. And that's risky for the dealer because they don't know who the end user of that vehicle is. It could violate certain state laws. It could also violate manufacturer rules that doesn't allow the vehicles to go beyond who that stated buyer is. And so that can present significant risk to the dealer. And I suppose also with regard to identity, if the dealer presents that loan for purchase to a particular lender and there was a default, that would go back to the dealer and the dealer would be on the hook for that loan, correct? Correct. And unfortunately, yeah, you could have a first payment default, which would be catastrophic in that situation because now the dealer owns the contract and may not really know who has the vehicle. Now, that to me is one of the things that we actually see a lot at dealerships where that sort of straw purchase has occurred and then there's a default and then the dealer is stuck with a loan. The other thing that we see a lot that I'd like you to talk in a little more detail is about the wholesaling of vehicles and kickbacks and how and when those occur. So the wholesaling process is a challenging area because you obviously want to maximize the value of those units that you're going to sell. So you don't want your accounting policies to get in the way of gross profit. But unfortunately, the controls that can exist over that process are challenging to implement. And so if you don't have defined vendors that you work with, for example, and you have a used vehicle manager who's free to sell these vehicles to whoever he or she chooses, it's difficult to understand, are you truly maximizing the value? Do you know that the used vehicle manager is not working alongside these vendors, these wholesalers who may be providing kickbacks to the used vehicle manager. And a final thing that can often be seen is sometimes you have a situation where the used vehicle manager is working with that wholesaler to buy and sell vehicles. You could have the same vehicle that was bought and sold back to the same wholesaler all to the detriment of the dealer. Incredible that that sort of thing goes on. Let's move to the F&I department. Let's hear some examples there. F&I is a wide open territory, obviously, because it's where the contract is signed. It's oftentimes where the cash is collected. The down payment is collected from the customer. The credit card is run and additional sales occur all at the same time. So you have this event that's occurring where you have an individual selling product, collecting money, signing legal documents, and the risk is enormous. So the most practical thing that can occur here from a fraud standpoint is the cash that's being put down as the down payment. And I keep saying cash because oftentimes it truly is currency that comes in. It's not a credit card or it's not a check. And so having control over is all the cash received? Does the cash match the contract as to what was supposed to be put down? And is the cash real? Is there a way to verify that it's not fake currency or all challenges? Interesting. And moving on to the parts department, we'll go through each of the departments, but let's stop at the parts department and see what's going on there. So unfortunately, most people at the dealer level don't have that core background in the parts department. They weren't trained in parts and service. They were trained in new and used vehicles. It's just a nuance of the industry. And so understanding how the individuals in that parts department are processing sales, how they're receiving payments from the customers, and then how the inventory itself is being managed is extremely difficult to get your arms around. Something that's as basic as understanding that the parts physical inventory is not connected to 
the data management system. So if you're on CDK or Reynolds and Reynolds, that number that you show on your balance sheet as your parts inventory is not connected to what is known as the parts pad where the inventory itself sits. So you, you have this disconnect that exists right out of the gate. So then when we walk into that department, that creates opportunities for the counter people, the manager to manipulate the parts pad. Selling parts on the side, collecting those monies, adjusting the parts pad can make it very difficult for the dealer to truly understand what's happening within the department. And tell us about the service department. Service department, similar to the parts department from the standpoint of the mechanics of it are different than the new and used vehicle sales. So we think about labor rates and we think about the labor codes that are used and the amount of hours that are posted to a repair order. If we don't understand the limitations that are inside our data management system, we may have service advisors who are able to adjust the repair order. And so maybe they can make a side agreement with a customer to adjust the repair order and take the difference personally in cash payment or some other sort of trade. It could be where employees are working together internally and they're taking products that exist inside the service department and are able to manipulate and adjust the repair orders. That ability to adjust and change repair orders is a common occurrence that we see, and it can create significant loss for the dealer. And it can even create loss with regard to OEM programs with regard to repairs, right? Yeah, it can. That's where this takes it to another level, because let's think about warranty work with the manufacturer. We could have a situation where if things are not functioning properly in the service department, we may not be properly using technician codes to work on vehicles. And so you could even have a scenario where technician codes are being posted to a warranty ticket because they're the only approved technician, but they're not the ones who really did the work. And if something were to go awry after the fact, and that was found, there could be significant liability to the dealer. So, you know, again, maybe not financial fraud, but definitely fraud from a record keeping standpoint that creates liability for the dealer. And it can become financial fraud, though, if a particular low level warranty repair, let's say a windshield wiper motor, and I may not be saying that right because I am definitely not an engineer, a windshield wiper motor is allegedly defective and perhaps that's covered under the warranty, but it's not happening in every vehicle. But of course, any customer who comes in would say, yeah, sure, go ahead and replace my windshield wiper motor. And a number of those are repaired that is outside the scope of what's usually done at dealerships. Something like that could trigger a good commission payment to someone, I suppose, but would not be truly authorized. And an OEM could come back and look at that and ding the dealer, right? Absolutely. And that's where the risk comes in because the pay plan incentivizes the departmental manager, the employee to be aggressive with those claims. The dealer gets a short-term benefit because they see the dealer financial statement and see additional margin being generated from the service department. But then unfortunately, six to nine months later, the OEM comes back and performs the audit and it all unwinds. And oftentimes that employee is no longer there to share in the unwinding process. It's only the dealer then who gets to experience the pain. That's right. And it's always tough to take pay back from an employee, even if they are still there. Now, the pay plan that you mentioned, I think it's worth commenting on. I don't know that this is a question, but the very pay plans that the industry relies on to generate sales and improve sales, and the pay plans are generally good ones and well done, also backfire with bad employees who are looking at these sorts of shortcuts, right? 
Absolutely. Somebody who is well-versed at committing fraud and is one of the more dangerous individuals to have in your store is going to zero in on pay plans that fall on gross and that fall on a variety of different metrics. When you start to add complexity to those pay plans, those individuals know that there's ways to work those plans. And so a good rule of thumb for us is the more complex the pay plan, the more exposure you have from a fraud standpoint. Interesting. So that means we should have the accounting firms look at the pay plans in addition to the lawyers looking at the pay plans, I suppose. It's probably not a bad idea. Having a pay plan is sometimes a great thing as well, where we find that maybe there isn't even a pay plan on file. So, For anybody out there who does not have pay plans for their employees, if that's the only thing you take away from this podcast, please get pay plans for your employees. Any event, let's move on to the last but not least, the finance department or financial statement fraud, really. This is perhaps the most important area, even though it may not occur as much. Tell us about that. So the accounting department within a dealership is truly one of the most unique situations, I think, period. If you take a comparable size business to the traditional automotive dealership, the level of accounting support you have in a dealership is typically much smaller. And it's much less experienced from an education standpoint. They don't necessarily have all the credentials that their peers might have in other industries. So your internal control environment already starts off limited. And so the ability for individuals within the accounting department to take Typically, cash is obviously first and foremost, but then to also manipulate the books and records is significant. So there's a short list of things that the dealer can do to provide themselves a significant amount of protection when it comes to the accounting department. Kim, let's switch to you for a moment. You're a valuation expert. Let's talk a bit about the impact that some of these fraud activities might have on the dealership business. What do you have to tell us about that? The two areas where fraud really has come up in my career in business valuation is when it's a direct impact on the value of the business and then second in shareholder disputes. How would fraud impact the value of the business? Maybe it seems obvious to us, but I think some of our listeners would like to hear about that. Two ways. And one is a little less impactful, but from a valuation standpoint, when fraud has been found in the past, and is known and has been worked through. So that might impact what we're looking at from a valuation standpoint in that we're going to look at the historical financial statements to understand what that business can do in the future to understand value. And so we might need to make an adjustment to those historical financial statements. And then also we're going to be asking some extra questions of the business owners and the management to understand if proper controls have been put in place to mitigate future fraud. Now, the one that can be far more impactful is the situation where fraud is occurring, but the owners and the management are not aware of it. Let me give an example. Let's say there is a dealership and they're going to market and they're unaware of this fraud. So the value of the dealership will in no small part be derived from the expected future cash flows, which are going to be supported by historical results. As you heard from my colleague, Lewis, Fraud can occur where it's increasing your profits or it's decreasing your profits. So in the scenario where the fraud is actually lowering the profits of the dealership, the owners are going to be going to market and receive a value that is most likely going to be impacted by those lower profitabilities and receive a lower value than they otherwise would have if that fraud had been known. Now, the flip side is where the profits are actually being propped up artificially. The risk there is actually coming from future litigation where the buyer is going to sue 
the previous owner for presenting fraudulent historical results to the seller, which that price was based off of. So at a very basic English level, reducing the revenue number causes the applicable multiple to result in a lower net return for the seller. And possibly if it resulted in a higher net return for the seller, that might go away in litigation later on. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yes. So you mentioned also shareholder disputes. Can you expand on that? How would fraud play a role in a shareholder dispute? This often involves financial statement fraud. So the situations normally where I've been involved include a general manager who's also a minority owner and fraud is alleged. So one part of the process might be the buyout of the GM's minority interest. These cases can play out in a number of ways. For instance, Lewis and I are currently involved in a case where fraud is alleged and of course the GM is denying the allegations. While the termination of the former GM was pretty quick, the litigation surrounding the case has been ongoing for multiple years now. In these situations, the financial impact can not only include the litigation costs, but bonuses that were made on the inflated profit and also the eventual purchase of the GM's minority interest. In another case I was involved in recently, the alleged fraud was again with a former GM. However, the parties ultimately entered a binding settlement agreement whereby Moss Adams would determine the price at which the GM's minority interest would be purchased. So it helped in eliminating the need to go to trial and future litigation costs surrounding that. But in this situation as well, the litigation went on for many years to get to that point and was very disruptive to the operating business. Often these situations could be mitigated through proper controls being in place. So while key management override is a significant area for fraud and pretty hard to stop if someone is very determined, it's also one area which simple controls can be very impactful. You mentioned, Kim, putting some simple controls in place that can help mitigate or prevent this sort of fraud that you're talking about with a minority shareholder, typically when it's a GM, that sort of situation. What kind of simple controls are you talking about? Segregation of duties is a real important one. I'm going to let Lewis cover most of the actual controls. One other thing that I would say that can help in these cases that I've seen is I would highly, highly recommend that anyone considering bringing on a GM and having them on as a minority interest holder as well, that they consult their legal counsel and draft employment and ownership agreements that consider properly the events surrounding fraudulent activities. Let me ask you to backtrack a little bit, Kim, on the segregation of duties. I suppose an example of that would be changing reporting structure. For example, the controller or the business office, perhaps reporting directly to the dealer or the CEO if it's a larger company, instead of reporting only to the GM. Is that the sort of segregation you're talking about? That might help. It also can be where you have that reporting structure to the GM, but you have review by the owner. So a lot of times, especially as groups have increased in size, the owners are less and less involved in the day-to-day operations of a specific dealership, but they can be reviewing and having oversight of what is happening at that dealership. So the important issue is not to leave the last look by the GM so that you can ensure that the GM is doing his or her job properly, even if there's not theft, I suppose. Exactly. Aaron, I hope you don't mind, but can I switch up the questions here and ask you a question? Of course. Go ahead. 
Given my examples, it's pretty clear the type of fraud litigation that I've been involved with has included internal fraud and committed by key management. Would you mind discussing external fraud investigations that you've been involved with, meaning where a third party is involved and how that might be different from a lawyer's perspective? Yes, that puts the company in a special kind of bind. So typically it happens, let's say, in the warranty area. You know, we gave the perhaps silly example of the windshield wiper motors earlier. There could be some other sort of fraud that exists. There could be a fraud that happened that reduced or increased profits. In your example, where it's the buyer who ends up being that third party looking at what happened and the selling dealer doesn't know about it, there could be a government investment investigation into certain finance practices. That happens with the FTC, with state attorneys general. And so there's several kinds of third parties that come into the picture. The reason I say it puts the dealer in a bit of a bind is that on the one hand, they need to defend against the investigation or the lawsuit. On the other hand, they do need to actually figure out the facts of what happened and how that money disappeared or how that increase in profits was a false increase in profits. And they're doing that so that they can understand the facts and then perhaps go to a rogue employee type defense that can be effective in these third party cases. But the dealer is in a bit of a bind. And the interesting thing is that these external investigations do happen. And often we find at our law firm anyway, that that's the way that the internal fraud is ultimately discovered by the dealer and or by us is that we are defending an action that is a government investigation and we find out that there was some rogue employee who was doing one of the things that you have both so articulately outlined for us and that that was the basis for whatever the dealer was allegedly doing wrong. Of course, the dealer is responsible for its employees, whether it's something as simple as smog testing and a smog technician is taking bribes for a clean result. All of that information, of course, goes right to the state. The state is easily able to find out that that was going wrong and the dealer itself can get in trouble for that. Some of the warranty issues that the dealer can get in trouble for. Of course, a buyer might sue a seller, as you gave an example of. So all of these things can lead to external problems as well as internal problems. And they're very, very messy when they happen. So that's a good question. While we're talking about prevention, why don't we segue back to you, Lewis, and go through some of the departments. And if you can, and I'll ask you about each one, but if you can, give us some ideas for policies and procedures that might help prevent some of these occurrences in the first place. So in the new and used vehicle department, for example, do you have any ideas about how to prevent or mitigate these types of fraud? Yeah. So you mentioned policies and procedures. And the first thing I would say is having clear and very brief but effective policies and procedures in place for each of the departments. So a departmental manager knows what their limits are, what their authority is, and understands that there's a check and a balance as to what they do. doesn't sound very exciting to say that, but having those procedures in place, having them signed, having them recognized, and also making sure that the dealer and the general manager practice what they preach and they follow those policies themselves. That's first and foremost, because it's that tone at the top that's going to drive a lot of the behavior in any one of these departments, but particularly in the new and used vehicle department. And what about F&I or any of the departments? Are there different sorts of policies and procedures that you would put in place, reporting structures, et cetera? 
Yeah, absolutely. And if we think about F&I, having F&I cameras, there's quite a few vendors that came on the market several years ago promoting that. And some dealers have taken that and some haven't. But having cameras in the F&I office can do a lot to prevent someone from committing fraud. Let me bring you back, Lewis, to your comment about cameras in the F&I department. I understand your point about watching employees and what is happening and perhaps preventing the pocketing of cash that is used for a purchase of a product or a down payment on a vehicle. That would be a great use of an F&I camera. But F&I cameras also record and keep a repository of evidence that in a government investigation can be used against a dealer. So do you have your clients weigh the consequences of that versus the benefit of monitoring employees? How do you approach that with your clients? With any good solution, there has to be proper implementation and monitoring of the process. And so correct to your point, if you're utilizing that tool, but you're not monitoring how long the video remains, is it archived, things like that, there'd be a huge issue. So if you're going to implement the tool, you've got to have strong controls around the tool and make sure that you don't cause unintended harm. The last thing I would say about those cameras is it goes a step further because it also puts the customer on notice as well that it provides them a sense of safety, but it also puts them on notice that we take this serious. And so you could have a mechanism there where you prevent fraud from an employee standpoint, but you also prevent fraud from a customer standpoint too. So it can be very valuable if used appropriately and properly monitored. I agree with what you just said and appropriateness and especially retention. So dealers typically have, or at least they should have a document retention policy. Remember dealers that videos are documents and the video should be subject to your same document retention policy. And I would recommend that you have a quick review process applicable to any videos that you're keeping in the F&I department. I'm a bit wary of videos in the F&I department myself, but if you are going to have them and you elect to have them, then a very short retention policy is advisable in my view. Do you agree with that, Lewis? Absolutely. And by short, I'm talking about no more than 30 days, probably more like 15 to 20 days. Correct. And really, one of the biggest risks that you can't really prevent very well is it's a Saturday evening and the F&I manager takes in $20,000 of cash. How do you prevent them from leaving town on Monday? This is a tool to help with that short-term challenge that the dealer might have internally while also mitigating and keeping the customer honest uh, in their dealings with you as well. So short, short-term nature, absolutely. And when we're talking about recording, of course, that brings to mind other laws that are applicable to recordings and states vary widely on what's allowed and what's not allowed. Some states allow video recording, but not audio recording without express permission. And there are privacy issues, data storage issues. So this is a more complex issue than just recommending recording and having a 20 or 30 day retention policy. So if someone listens to us and wants wants to record, please fully review that recording policy with your professional advisors. So let's continue with some of the prevention techniques. Are there others that you want to tell us about with regard to mitigation techniques? I think one that is F&I specific, but it also could flow into other departments. If you're a dealership that receives a lot of cash, we definitely have certain stores that are in neighborhoods that are cash intensive neighborhoods. There is a tool which is known as a reverse ATM, and it looks like an ATM, but it takes the cash in instead of giving it out. 
And so what that does is it allows the dealer to, one, verify that the currency is real so they don't have to worry about a forgery. It also immediately puts the cash into a safe so it prevents the counting and the handling of it by the employees. And it immediately provides a receipt to the customer and to the employee so they can store in the deal jacket. So that's a nice tool that helps the dealer remove a pain point if they're in a cash intensive environment. And I suppose in the service and parts department, that could be useful as well, right? Absolutely. And one of the challenges we still see is there's certain OEMs who want the service advisor to be the cashier. And they say that it improves CSI and that it makes the customer experience better. And it very well may make CSI a little bit better, but it creates a situation where the dealer has somebody who's selling a product, generating a repair order, and is also receiving payment. So anything that the dealer can do in that situation to add additional controls is going to be super important because that's a risk for the dealer. Do you have any idea if that's an expensive system? The reverse ATM itself does carry fees with it, so it is not free and it will add an incremental cost. I will say my experience, the stores that I've worked with who've implemented it have found it to be well worth the cost because of the risk that it took away and just the brain damage associated with handling cash. Now, if you're in an area that doesn't get a lot of cash and if you're sitting in certain neighborhoods in Southern California that everybody uses a credit card this may not be an issue, but there are those neighborhoods all throughout the country where the customer doesn't utilize a bank quite as often and they have mattress money that they use for the purchase of their vehicle or payment for service. Excellent. There's one area that we haven't talked about that Kim said she wanted to rely on you with regard to mitigation and that's segregation of duties. So I wanted to give you a chance to comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about prevention and the mitigation of risk to the dealer, there's two things that we want to look at. We want to look at segregation of duties, both within the accounting department, but also within our operational department. So when we think about trying to divide up the responsibilities, so this, the person who is signing a check may not have access to actually generate a check, something as simple as that. So they can't just generate a check and sign it themselves. Something that requires two signatures on a check. So if you have a situation with a minority partner, like Kim was mentioning, you don't want just that minority partner signing the checks. And that minority partner doesn't want to just be the signer of the check for their own safety and security. Because as we see after the fact, they might be blamed for something that wasn't their fault. So having two individuals that are signing those checks can be a nice segregation of duties to ensure sure that there's multiple individuals involved in the process. There's also another piece of this too that's very tangible takeaway for those that are listening, but just having some basic reconciliations that they look at on a monthly basis are excellent tools that will touch most all of your departments to ensure that there's at least some control in place. And the most common one would be a bank reconciliation. Low-hanging fruit but it's something that's oftentimes not done timely or not done at all. And so ensuring that the bank accounts are reconciled on a daily basis is what we would recommend. Having a floor plan reconciliation over your new and used inventory, if you have floor plan for used, otherwise it wouldn't be applicable there. But having that reconciliation done monthly, having a parts to pad reconciliation. We talked earlier about parts inventory not being integrated to the GL. And so being able to look at that as the dealer and say, I have these key reconciliations in place. So I at least know that these items, there still may be fraud, but at least I'm starting to mitigate the areas where the fraud could be occurring and I'm not seeing it. Lewis, thanks for those great tips on mitigation. Kim, do you have anything to add to our prevention model? 
I would just say that a simple thing to think about is what we call the simple ABCs for segregation of duties. So separating out authorization, bookkeeping, and custody. An example might be with the payroll processing. So authorization would be with a different person that is not the same person as the person doing the bookkeeping, which is also a different person from those that are actually creating the actual payments. And so that can really help. The only other one I would say is actually reviewing activity logs. And this I'm bringing up when it comes to payroll. So actually looking at who has entered and at what time they've entered, seeing a new employee entered at midnight, that might be an indication you need to go and look into something. Well, thank you very much to our guests, Lewis Fisher and Kim Leinbarger. That was very interesting, excellent information. And thanks to our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast and learned from our podcast. So we've been joined by Lewis Fisher and Kim Leinbarger from Moss Adams. I'm Aaron Jacoby from Errant Fox Schiff. Thank you for listening.